Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. Today on the pod, we talk football and more with Ken Early from the Irish Times and the Second Captains Podcast. We're going to talk about the lingering effects of Ireland's exit from the World Cup qualifying, the future of Martin O'Neill and Roy Keane as Ireland bosses, their fractious relationship with Everton Football Club, a look at the Champions League, and an examination of Ken's favorite rivalry, perhaps in sports, Pep Guardiola versus Jose Mourinho. We also talk about the Second Captain's podcast service and Ken's political podcast that he does as part of the World Service. As a note, there is plenty of political talk at the end of the show, so if that is not your bag of tea, please feel free to skip that section. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. There's always plenty to talk about in the world of football and discuss some of them. We are happy to have on the show today from the Irish Times and the Second Captain's Podcast, it's Ken Early. How are you doing today, Ken? Pretty good, Mark. And yourself? I am good. Thank you. Um, I guess we'll start. We are still in uh, World Cup aftermath, and uh, Ireland did not make it after their uh, second leg lost to Denmark. Um, given that I think people uh, generously thought there was maybe a 50-50 chance of Ireland getting through, uh, how are things generally there about the team not making it? I'm sure not on the apocalyptic scale that we're seeing in Italy and to some extent here in the United States about us not qualifying, but how are things in Ireland? <laughs> yeah, not too good. Um, I mean, I, you know, it's... In one sense, Ireland is always a, a little bit pessimistic about the chances of qualifying for the World Cup. I mean, we haven't qualified since 2002. It's difficult to qualify for the World Cup from Europe. It's a little bit different um, from the uh, from the setup that you boys have. <laughs> it's really amazing to think that the United States could not could contrive to not qualify for the World Cup is is uh, is pretty incredible. Um, although Ireland did have a have a you know, the group could have been more difficult. I mean, the, the top-seeded team in our group, uh, and usually you're, you're talking about a country like Germany, France, Spain, you know, one of the sort of big countries. Instead, we actually had Wales. Wales who were really highly ranked because they had done so well in the European Championships. So they were sort of the top seed, which meant that for once we could sort of think that maybe we might have a chance of, of topping this group. Uh, although we also had Serbia, who, Serbia, who are uh, traditionally a pretty tough team. They ended up winning the group. We actually uh, knocked Wales out. Uh, we beat them to uh, to get to second place. Then went into the playoff against Denmark, a team that I think everyone was quite happy to get, given that the options included Italy. Um, so we were, we were quite happy, I think, to play Denmark instead of Italy. And it turned out we were all wrong about that, because Denmark at the moment are a good bit better than Italy. And uh, they absolutely uh, destroyed us. 5-1 in, in a in a complete uh, complete disaster. I, I mean, it's not so much that they that they lost the playoff as the manner in which they lost it. That's that's caused I think a few problems here. Um, to lose 5-1 at home uh, is is really is never going to be a good result, uh, especially when you've drawn nil-nil in the first leg, and it looks as though the teams are you know evenly matched, kind of evenly matched. But we just made such a mess of it, you know, individual mistakes, 
uh, very bizarre substitutions by the manager. Substitutions, in fact, which were so bizarre that even afterwards he said, well, like, I have to accept this. That didn't really work out, which is quite rare that a manager will actually specifically admit to uh, to mistakes of that nature, which which uh, ended up costing us the game pretty badly. So, yeah, I mean, I think everyone is is uh, is depressed. I mean, it's it is it's it's terrible, you know, to miss out in the World Cup with one game to go is always disappointing in such an embarrassing way, makes it even worse. Um, although I suppose we've had time to get our heads around it now and we're reconciled to our fate. Do you think O'Neill and Keane are going to stay as managers? Well, I mean, they it was announced, weirdly, uh, with two games still to go in the qualifying group. So around the start of October, that uh, O'Neill and Keane had agreed to extend their contracts uh, until Euro 2020, um, you know, two-year extension. But they hadn't actually signed these contracts that later emerged. So as, as of yet, the contracts, while agreed, remain unsigned. Now, Martin O'Neill spoke uh, in, in the immediate aftermath of the 5-1 on the, on the night, saying, well, the agreement is there, you know. And, and his, it sounded as though he expected to be signing the contract. He didn't expect any changes to the fact that the agreement was there, despite the, the bad defeat that they'd suffered. But then um, the next day, uh, there was a couple of reports uh, suggesting that Martin O'Neill was feeling a little bit miffed or a little bit sore and salty about the criticism that he'd had since he became Ireland manager. Uh, so what do you people expect? You know, we've, we've actually done pretty well uh, with this team. Um, you know, it's not as though we've got a collection of the best players in the world. And that maybe he was he was thinking he might have had enough of it. Now, I still expect him to sign purely because they had already agreed. Uh, and I've got uh, and I haven't heard anything directly from Martin O'Neill to suggest that he's changing his mind. The other thing is that Euro 2020 is a weird tournament where um, where it's not actually being hosted in any one particular country. It's being it's kind of diffused around the continent. So there's, you know, three games here, three games there. Dublin is going to be one of the host cities. So. There is a chance, a small chance, that Ireland might play in a European Championship game in Dublin, which would be a big event uh, worth sticking around for. You know, I, th I think so. Uh, he always sounded enthusiastic about staying on until this this most recent uh, defeat. And in any case, if he was to if he was to decide, okay, I've had enough of this, I'm not quite sure where he's going to turn to get a job on the same sort of level. You know, on the same salary level, he gets a million euros a year, which is a, a pretty decent salary. Um, you know, you could make more than that in the Premier League as a, as a manager, but I'm not sure there's a Premier League club who particularly wants to hire Martin O'Neill at this stage of his career. So it seems to me, looking on from the outside, that this is probably the top job, you know, that he could that he could get at the moment. Uh, and so I, th I would expect him to stay on, but until the contract is signed, we can't be sure. Well, I guess the question would be, is, is he part of this sort of, international merry-go-round that may be going on right now with that saw Coleman, you know, leave Wales to go to Sunderland of all places. We've seen a bunch of teams that are interested in the other O'Neill from, from Northern mm -hmm. Ireland. And then of course, you know, you've got, you know, like I said, the mess in Italy, not that, that necessarily is someplace O'Neill would go, but it seems mm -hmm. like there's all these job openings going around, especially, you know, in sort of the UK Ireland area that, you know, you wonder if, O'Neill, or even if Keane would you know, would be interested in becoming a head coach again or a manager again. Well, I think that Keane certainly would. I mean, Keane at the moment is an assistant, so 
he's not even. I mean, you you asked if Keenan O'Neill would stay on as managers. I mean, he's just the, he's just the assistant. You know, he's not the manager, and he's get, he gets paid I think three hundred thousand euros a year, which is considerably less than O'Neill. Which means that if he was to manage at a championship club in in England or that sort of level, he'd have a good chance of of getting paid more than that. So there could be financial incentive for him to move. In addition to the fact that he could become an actual manager, be running a team as opposed to just sort of, you know, helping out with uh, with some other guy who's running a team. The one thing I was curious about, because I don't know if if I know sort of where this started, but uh, as an Everton fan, I'm curious about the sort of weird, fractious relationship the club has with O'Neill and Keane, especially involving <laughs> players, you know, I guess the health status of players from Everton when they go on international duty. Um, it seems like it's going back, it's not just sort of currently that it goes all the way back to Roberto Martinez, if not earlier, and, you know, not everything is going to be as bad as uh, an Everton player getting his leg broken as as happened last year but where does all that where did all that sort of stem from well i think i think the, the basic uh it started to arise because everton had four uh players who were in the ireland team uh, they were coleman james coleman darren gibson aiden mcgeady and uh who was the other one? Oh christ <laughs> how can i not remember gibson coleman mcgeady and there was one other player you can't help me out here. Can you read uh, not off, yeah, not off the top of my head. Shane Duffy obviously was there, but I don't think he's one of the ones I was thinking of. Anyway, the, the oh, James McCarthy, of course. James McCarthy was probably the one that caused most of the problems. Um, but what happened was, so, so when you've got four players from one Premier League team, obviously there's a lot, there's a lot of things. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of, there's, there's more potential for conflict there as any of these players can have injury problems at any time. Now, Darren Gibson uh, busted his cruciate ligament playing for Ireland in, I think it was a friendly, it may have been a, a, a meaningless sort of end-of-group qualifier, uh, but one way or the other, playing for Ireland at the Aviva Stadium, went back to Everton with a, a, a torn cruciate ligament and was out for, you know, nine or ten months. Obviously, they're not going to be happy about that. Seamus Coleman, more recently, had his leg snapped by um, Neil Taylor, in the game against Wales. Uh, so he, he was out. He's going to be probably missing about a year for Everton. So these are the kinds of things that really, really, really annoy um, clubs. I mean, understandably, if, if Seamus Coleman hadn't snapped his leg that time, who's to say that Ronald Koeman wouldn't still be the manager of Everton? You know, who's to say that they, they this season could have gone a lot better for them than it has? You know, you lose a player like that, uh, and obviously it's going to hurt the team. It certainly hurts uh, the Irish team to lose him. You've got, though, James McCarthy, who's a player who's had a lot of kind of vague and ill-defined injury problems, sort of muscular problems, groin problems, you know, these sorts of, not a, not a simple cut-and-dried injury like, you know, I mean, Coleman's is, a, is a, an example of a very serious injury, but it was a simple injury in the sense that, okay, we this guy's got a badly broken leg, uh, and we know how to, how to fix it when he's got, you know, we can put a time scale on his recovery. Whereas with James McCarthy, it was always... Oh, I'm not sure. I feel a little. I feel a bit of a twinge. I'm. I'm not quite sure if I'm in. If I'm fully fit, and but so so that's and you're in that situation. The manager of whatever team is like, are you sure you're really injured, James, or do you think that you could possibly maybe get out there and play this one for us? You know what I mean? Yeah. That's the sort of. He he was in that sort of grey area. Um. So when you're in that kind of grey area, say he's playing for Everton. And then there's an international break coming up, and Everton want him to stay and rest 
because he's got there's something wrong there's something not quite right but they're like say, you know stay and rest in a couple of weeks he might be ready to play again for us uh, in the league the last thing they want is for him to go off and play for some other team you know with sort of different training and travel and all these kinds of things but of course Ireland wanted to play as well Ireland are saying well this guy isn't really injured he just played for you on, on Saturday get him over here you know we think he's probably all right so you get into these you get into this sort of conflict situation um and I think just that happened too much uh, with so many of these players. I mean, I remember Keane. Keane in particular, though, has, has been a little bit waspish about it, like in the sense of, oh, you know, these Everton guys, these poor guys, you know, coming in, uh, you know, you think, you think they'd be coming in on crutches, you know, from what you hear from the Everton medical staff. And, and they, they, they arrive over here and they, they all seem to be fine. You know, it was, it's just sort of like, and when he says that, then obviously Everton get annoyed and they have a pop back. And then it just sort of goes into a tit-for-tat sort of cycle. I mean, it, I think it just arose from the fact that at that time, they had four players. Obviously, McGeady is now gone. Uh, Gibson is gone. Uh, Coleman, well, is still there, but injured. And McCarthy hasn't played. I don't think he has he played this season. I mean, certainly, uh, certainly not too much. I don't, I don't think he's played at all. So, uh, so it's kind of subsided a little bit since then. I think it was really just to do with the fact that the, the sides had too many players in common. So, is, has that been an issue? Because uh, Ireland has a lot of Burnley players. Has has there something similar happened with them? No, not yet. Luckily enough, um, the Burnley players who, who are like Hendrick, Brady, Stephen Ward, um, John Walters, Kevin Long as well, I think. So I think it's five now. Um, Walters has been injured, uh, but uncontroversially injured, clearly incapable of playing for either Burnley or Ireland. All the rest, rest of them have been fit, so there haven't been any problems. Um, you know, if, if if we continue to have five Burnley players, I'm sure problems will soon arise. <laughs> you can't. It's just the way it's 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 naturally going to go. What, what can you do? The Champions League will be back and kicking off. Uh, it seems like there aren't necessarily a ton of great matchups. I mean, you've got Dortmund and Spurs and Sevilla and Liverpool, and I guess tomorrow you have Madrid and Roma or Atletico and Juve and Barca. Overall, in the Champions League, has have there been really many surprises from from year end? I guess maybe, you know, how good Spurs have been, and and in that same group, the way Dortmund has has sort of fallen off lately. Um, uh, I think the group stage of the Champions League is usually pretty boring. Um, it has been that way for a long time. I would I would actually say that this year it's been better than average. Um, there was, you know, there've been some great matches. Chelsea against Roma was was good. Uh, the Tottenham game, again, Tottenham against Real Madrid, uh, was very good. Tottenham, Tottenham's group in general, I mean, three really top sides in that group. Uh, I mean, you say that Dortmund have fallen off. I think they, I think that's probably true to say. Although there was always going to be a big team going out in that group. Uh, Tottenham, uh, Dortmund actually played quite well against Tottenham at Wembley. Uh, and we're unlucky to lose in the way that they did. You know that game could have easily gone the other way, and then we might be talking about Tottenham as, as having uh, as being struggling. You know, um, generally you, you can't really expect that much from the group stages because the way that the seeding works and the way that the, the way that the kind of general inequality in European football has been uh, has kind of um, has grown uh, over the last over the time that the Champions League has been in existence. So since 1992, the last 25 years. Um, you're, you're, you're usually getting situations where you've, in each 14 group, two of the teams are much richer than the other two teams, and it's pretty obvious which two teams are going to make it through, and, and that happens very reliably. It's usually the teams with the biggest 
wage uh, wage bills, biggest payrolls who are getting through. So that does tend to remove a bit of the drama. Um, you know, I mean, the, the Champions League in itself was was kind of designed to it designed to neutralise autumn drama in European football. I mean, it was kind of designed so that I mean, the, the, I think the the reason that it sort of took hold was was Silvio Berlusconi in the in the eighties. Uh, who was then the the uh, owner and president of AC Milan? Appalled at some of the um, some of the it used to be just an open draw, so you might get like Real Madrid playing AC Milan, you know, in, in one of the early rounds, and one of them was going to get knocked out in you know October, um, uh, and I think Berlusconi was was appalled by this. He was like, oh, well, this is, this is obviously nonsense. You know, we want the biggest teams in the biggest games. I mean, he would say this as like. Uh, a TV, an owner of TV stations and an owner of a big football club. Um, his idea was, you know, it's it's all about the big teams. You know, these little teams, no one's really that interested. You know, if, if Real Madrid or AC Milan gets knocked out in the in, in the first round of the European Cup, as it then was, then that's going to hurt the TV ratings for the rest of the tournament. You know, this is, this isn't good for anyone. So why don't we have a system whereby that jeopardy is sort of taken out of the early stages? Everyone gets to play at least six games. Everyone's guaranteed a certain number of, of matches that way. And it gives a big team that unexpectedly loses a match a chance to rescue themselves, which invariably they do. You know, you might get an upset a team, a big team loses to a small team in a Champions League group game. But by the end of the six group games, the big team is one of the top two going through. It's really the knockout rounds in the Champions League, that, which is where all the, uh, the excitement is. That's when it becomes more difficult to predict. And that's, that's also when you get to see the highest level of the game really uh, that there that there is out there um not so much the group stages i think this year's group stage has actually been quite good by comparison to uh, what it's usually like which is pretty bad and speaking of big teams having success uh that can lead us to manchester city um obviously you know they're they're head and shoulders right now above everybody else in the premier league but my question uh as a listener to the podcast is uh you <clears throat> You enjoy very much talking about Pep and Jose. Uh, it seems like uh, every week um, one or both of them are, are featured in your your Monday wrap-up. Is it just that they are both sort of charismatic and successful that makes them worth talking about and they're great coaches? Or is there is there something something more to either one or both of them and or the rivalry that has sort of you know, been, gone from Spain and now is in England. Well, it, it is just, I mean, they are, they are opposites in so many ways. Um, and, you know, when you see such very different figures who stand for very different things and, and, and have been sort of uh, placed in these situations where they're, they're, you know, first of all at Real Madrid and Barcelona and now at Manchester United and Manchester City, you know, direct rivals um, in charge of you know some of the biggest, certainly the richest teams in in the respective leagues, with the best players in those leagues available. Um, it's I mean it's it's really fascinating. You can't you know this when when they I don't know if if there's a real uh, hatred between them anymore, or if there ever was. I think there's definitely a kind of a jealousy from Mourinho towards Guardiola. I think Guardiola is the is the man Mourinho. You know, wishes he could have been. Guardiola was a great player. Uh, he won the uh, Champions League uh, with Barcelona. He captained Barcelona. Um, Jose Mourinho was was never a you know a, a player at a at a serious level. 
Um, and I think he would have liked to have been. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I, you know which, which, is, which is not to say that that's necessarily the thing that's determined his outlook for the rest of his life. He obviously learned a lot of what he knows about football, certainly got his start as a coach in football at Barcelona when Guardiola was in the team. Uh, Jose Mourinho was on the staff. Um, I mean, it's a, it, there's so many of the top coaches in Europe now actually were at Barcelona or even like Maurizio Pochettino at Espanyol in Barcelona um, around that time. It was a real um, kind of a football uh, university, you could say. But um, Jose Mourinho seemed to take very different things from it from, from Guardiola and a lot of the other Barcelona players uh, who were there. Uh, he's got a very different vision of what the game is all about. I mean, for Guardiola, it's all about you know, controlling the ball and, um, you know, dominating the game through possession and, you know, being, being the one who makes the game happen, the proactive approach to the game. We've got the ball and this is what we're going to do. We know what we're going to do. Um, they've got, you know, a million and one different choreographed situations that they can do, but they're like very firm principles of what to do with the ball. But number one comes the ball. You need to have the ball. With Mourinho, it's almost the opposite. It's like, no, you know, there's a lot of nonsense talk by a lot of poets and philosophers. I mean, it's obviously Guardiola. He's thinking of when he says this kind of stuff. Um, the philosopher, that's what Zlatan, who's obviously back with Mourinho now at, uh, at Manchester United, called him the philosopher contemptuously because he was another player who didn't really get what, what Guardiola was on about. Uh, so on the one hand, you've got this, like, um, I, I feel that it's, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Amadeus. Yeah. It, there's a bit of the Salieri's going on with, with Mourinho. I feel there's, there's a little bit of that, like a kind of... Uh, oh. You know, I, I think he's jealous of the sort of acclaim that Guardiola gets, um, which is which is always, oh, you know, not just, oh, what a great team, but, oh, isn't this football played in the right way? Pep is so good for the game. And Mourinho has never really got that. It's always been, oh, you know, this has been a bit boring. And surely they could play better football with these, with the quality of players that they've got here at Chelsea or at Real Madrid or at Manchester United. I think that kind of thing really annoys him. Um I mean, I don't know. You could talk about this all day. <laughs> I mean, we talk about it, as, as you say, a lot of the time. But it, it has to do with the contrast in their characters, um, the contrast in what they stand for as managers. And then then the fact that Mourinho is, I feel, always willing to sort of stoke things up a little bit. He's always willing to make things a little personal. But I think that Guardiola, if they were both sort of a bit more like Guardiola, they maybe wouldn't really say anything about each other. But with Mourinho on one side, he does say things and he, 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 he does provoke sort of situations. He does kind of stoke up conflict. I think he does it to the, certainly when he was at Real Madrid and, and Guardiola's at Barcelona, that was part of his uh, strategy for sort of rattling Barcelona's cage, you know, sort of getting them a little bit, disorientating them a bit, getting them a bit annoyed um, to sort of um, throw a few insults their way and try to create controversies and... Uh, and annoy them and put them off their game. He, there hasn't really been so much of that since he's come to Manchester United. But I do wonder if, uh, as things go on, if City do continue to lead, whether Mourinho might try some of that to, to see if he can uh, if he can get some results that way. Well, the thing I've always said about Jose is he strikes me very much as being sort of an old school wrestling bad guy manager, and we know that. You know that he's he's on some level a wrestling fan because he's been shown like on TV when when the WWF comes to comes to Manchester or other places where he's been before. So you know he very much has that sort of you know over the top kind of 
provocateur, poking the bear kind of that I'm sure that uh, some of it is is for show, and he's he's very very good at it. I mean, you look at you know back you know when he used to jibe Arsene Wenger all the time. You know, like he's he's very skilled at doing that kind of thing, and you know, and he's and he's a good man manager. So, it, it I mean, it's very simplistic for them to be painted as good guy bad guy, but it seems like that's a role Jose relishes. Is he a good man manager? I guess, well, maybe he's a good man manipulator. Maybe that's a, a better way of saying it. Mm. Yeah, I think at Real Madrid he did very consciously embrace the bad guy ethos. You know, if you, I don't know if you ever read Diego Torres' book about him, um, The Dark Side of Jose Mourinho, a book which I, for which I, I believe Jose Mourinho doesn't have much time. Uh, but uh, as far as I know, hasn't really disputed the contents, and it is fascinating. Um, but, you know, he does... Uh, he, you know, at Real Madrid, his his, his uh, thing with players was, look, you know, they're 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 getting all the credit. You know, it's UNICEF. It's like everyone's like, oh, Barcelona is so great. You know, Guardiola is a genius, and like these guys are such great guys. And yes, you know, Messi, like they're saints. They can do no wrong. We're the bad guys in this movie. We have to be the bad guys in this movie. You know, that was uh, that was like his his whole thing. You know, let's get out there, be be hard, be ruthless, destroy, kill, Cobra Kai. You know, this kind of stuff. Um, I mean, at Manchester United, again, he, but Mourinho generally, he doesn't quite burn with the same intensity that he used to at, um, uh, you know, in, in, in his earlier days as a manager. You know, I, I feel he's, he has he has faded a little bit in that sense. He's not quite the the um, the man he was. But he is still, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, what's what's left to say about this guy? He reminds me of Trump. You know, or rather, Trump reminds me of Mourinho. Mourinho, to my mind, has been around. But I mean, I, I guess the first time I heard of Donald Trump was probably the late 80s. Um, but I didn't really pay him a great deal of attention until 2015 uh, when he when he started running for president. But, you know, there is, the, you know, Mourinho, I suppose, has been, a, has been a dominant figure over here for longer than Trump in that sense. Uh, but he does remind me a little bit, you know, that sort of, that thing of, uh, you know, that thing Trump does of, oh, um, if anyone, you know, hits out of me, you know, I, I hit them back 10 times harder. You know, he, he can't let any any perceived slight go un, un, unpunished by, like, retaliation. Um, you know, uh, he's, so he's always on Twitter, like, slamming people. I mean, Jose, uh, I, an example of that I can recall was... Uh, was a couple of years ago when, when Rafael Benitez's wife gave some interview to like a lifestyle magazine where she said, oh yeah, like right, the thing is that Benitez had followed uh, Mourinho at Inter, into, he, Mourinho had been the Inter coach and Benitez took over, and then at Real, uh, Real Madrid, uh, he, he, Mourinho had been the coach and, and Benitez was the coach at Real Madrid, and Benitez had also been the coach at Chelsea after Mourinho had been there. Um, with some managers in between, and she she made some offhand comment to the, uh, you know, along the lines of, oh yeah, you, your your husband has managed a lot of the same clubs that Jose has. And she said, oh yeah, we're always cleaning up his messes, which I think a lot of managers might have maybe been a bit annoyed by, but wouldn't really have paid any attention to. But Mourinho was straight on going there, you know. Maybe Mrs. Benitez needs to spend a bit more time in the kitchen looking after her husband's diet. 
because so so uh, basically number one, uh, Mrs. Benitez needs to shut her mouth, and number two, uh, she needs to sort out Rafa's diet because he's uh, he's fat, he's overweight. You know, this was like, <laughs> I mean, how Trump is that? Like, that's <laughs> that's Trump. Uh, but that's that's. Uh, Chesney's been doing that kind of thing for years. He probably does it a bit less now than he used to. I mean, he <clears throat> he, he had a, pr- a problem there at Chelsea, uh, you, you might recall, uh, in his last season at Chelsea when uh, uh, one of his players got injured, Eden Hazard. His doctor ran onto the field to treat the injury. Uh, and Mourinho exploded because, <clears throat> you know, this, uh, this meant that Eden Hazard would have to come off, so Chelsea would be left with 10 men for the next move in injury time, all this kind of stuff. And, and he had a big popper in the stadium, like, screaming abuse at her, and then he, he uh, attacked her again in the TV interview. Uh, and it led to her leaving the club and, and suing them for, like, uh, you know, in, a, in an employment tribunal, and they ended up paying her, I believe, £5 million to settle the case. So, you know, this this, this was even... This was after Jose had left the had left the club, but it was, you know, the whole, the, the whole series of events had happened while he was there. You know, he had kind of demoted her from the team and all this kind of stuff, and she felt like she was being pushed out by him. So, you know, that, that obviously wasn't, wasn't too good for his uh, image. Um, maybe he's dialed down some of the personal stuff that he used to do uh, more recently. I haven't seen so much evidence of it, uh, so much evidence of it recently. Well, I remember... Uh, when he was being considered for the job, there were people who thought, you know, that that personality-wise, he would not fit at, you know, the sort of stayed proper United. And I know, I think Bobby Robson wasn't necessarily, at that point, a fan of hiring him. And you wonder, it does seem like, you know, he's, like, he understands the importance of being at United, either for his brand or for just for public opinion's sake, and maybe he's behaving because he's at United, but then you figured, you know, he's been at Madrid, which is like, you know, one of the biggest clubs in the world, so it's not like he's, you know, uh, being at a big club has changed him, because he's been at maybe even a bigger club, but it does seem like he's bought into a little tour, sort of the United mystique, and sort of playing it a little closer to the vest. Um, I'm not... I'm not really sure about that. I mean, we have already seen this season, uh, you know, him him talking about Paris and how wonderful and magical a city it is and how his son had gone to see the Paris game, you know, which is like, you know, everyone knows what, what he means by that. I mean, Mourinho has been complaining um, that, you know, he hasn't quite been backed in the way that he feels he needs to be if they're going to challenge Manchester City, you know, back, you know, financially, in terms of players, Manchester United have spent tons of money, more than almost anybody. Although Manchester City did spend a little bit more, that is the case. Um, but when he started talking about PSG, you know, that struck me as as as, as very much of the traditional sort of Mourinho. Um, you know, this this is how he he puts pressure onto the club. It's a sort of a case of if I if I feel I'm not getting the support that I I need here at Manchester United. Then there are plenty of other clubs out there, including Paris, a wonderful club and a wonderful city. You know what I mean? This is what he was saying. So, so everyone is like, okay. So, what is that supposed to mean? Is he talking to to Paris Saint Germain? You then have stories coming out that Paris Saint Germain are, you know, considering maybe changing their manager. You know, all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think I think that was that was a bit more of the old old fashioned Jose. And then we did have uh, as well earlier in the season. He he criticised his own fans a couple of times, which is which is always a 
risky move for a for a manager, certainly in England. Um, but you know, he, he suggested that some of the fans weren't supporting the players as they should have been. You know, Luka, Romelu Lukaku needed more support from the crowd. Um, you know, he put something in his program notes. Oh, I hope you enjoy this game more than some of you enjoyed the game against Tottenham. Tottenham game, a game that they won, but in an ugly sort of a style, uh, without playing particularly well. Um, some of the people weren't too, uh, or there was, there was complaints about the way that they played the game afterwards. And Mourinho was kind of like, "Well, we won. What, what more do you want? You know, what's what's what is wrong? What what do you people actually want?" So he's had he's had a couple of goes at his own fans, and I'm not sure that all of the fans really fully appreciated that either. Um, you know, th- these are these are sort of Mourinho things to do. Uh, I mean, just because he hasn't, you know, as far as I can recall, in the last few months had any big one-on-one um, rows or fights doesn't necessarily doesn't mean that he's he's a he's a changed man. Before we go, uh, I wanted to to make sure that uh, we talked about uh, the Second Captains podcast that you are part of. Uh, you guys have been doing the pod for a couple years, and then earlier this year you went to um, sort of a, a paid subscription model through Patreon. Um, it's been nine months or so. Uh, generally speaking, how has how has that been for you guys? Yeah, it's all been it's all gone very well so far. We're we're delighted with the support from the audience. So uh, things are going well, and we just hope we can we can. Um, Keep going the way we've we've been going and, and everything's good. Uh, has it? Ha, have you guys had to change your schedule up a lot going to a, a daily format? I know all of you aren't on every day, but uh, has that been like an increased workload for you guys? I mean, a little bit, but that's that's okay. You know, that's that's uh, that's what we that's what we wanted to do. So, uh, so yeah, from that point of view, that's that's all good. Uh, and the interesting thing about the podcast is that you uh, have a very unsports, generally related political podcast, in amongst the sort of regular football and Irish sports stuff that you guys talk about. Why did you w- want to do a, a political podcast? Well, because you know, it's uh, you talk about the sort of stuff that you talk about all the time, and sort of with your with your friends. I mean, how crazy everything in the world is now um sort of so much stuff <laughs> so so many crazy things happening that it seemed like a good idea to have a uh, show where we could talk about some of that you know we always kind of did incorporate some of that sort of stuff in sports coverage anyhow although you do find increasingly that if you do that in sports coverage some people like it but some people are annoyed by it. You know, I mean, it's a very familiar debate in America. I think this thing, if this thing of uh, oh, keep uh, politics out of sports. You know, sports and politics don't mix. All that kind of stuff. Yeah, there's um, now I do, yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say there's the there's a very vocal uh, segment out there that is very quote unquote stick to sports. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can certainly see that with the with the NFL and the you know the protest movement. I mean that's that's definitely and then if you have you know the people covering it starting you know injecting their opinions into stuff and yeah you see more and more you know especially you know in the last year or so um you definitely have more sports writers or personalities who who inject 
you know, their own thoughts about everything into, you know, their social media or whatnot. Yeah. Well, I don't see any, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, I think that's, uh, I think that's probably the way that it should be. Um, I mean, if you have interesting thoughts on a subject, I don't see why you should share them. Just why you shouldn't share them, just because you know you're you're talking about sport or whatever. But I, you know, I can sort of see where I can sort of see where people are coming from. Although my, it's not my view. My view is that things are connected. I mean, sport is inseparable from politics. Politics is is just is the world. You know, it's that's it's this is the world that we're living in. You can see it in the NFL. I mean, it's the NFL has been dominated all year by this by the anthem stuff this is the biggest thing that's going on you know to to ignore it is just it's it's ridiculous it's not it's nonsensical it's schizophrenic it's like oh let's you know let's just sort of stick our heads in the sand and ignore all the stuff that's going on i i do find that a lot of the stick to sports crew tend to be more on one side of the political spectrum actually it does seem to me yeah um so you know, okay. Well, you, you stick to sports. You, you don't like us talking about. You don't like people talking about stuff that you you sort of disagree with or are against or that that annoys you to hear spoken about. You know, but it's it's not it's what you're not saying is stick to is stick to sports. You're saying shut up and don't say that. I mean, if you're saying stick to sports, what you should say is get rid of the anthem from the NFL. You know, every stick to sports person person in the United States should be out in the streets campaigning to have the anthems stripped out of American sports. What is it doing there? What is why why do you play the national anthem before a game between two, you know, private companies? <laughs> it's completely ridiculous. It's totally stupid. You know, in, in, in Europe you'll only ever hear the national anthem played before an international fixture of some kind. You know, it's 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 the it's the country that's playing. That's why you play the national anthem. When, you know, it's like the forty ers against whoever, why why do you have the national anthem? I know it's a tradition, but it's a stupid tradition. And anyone who says stick to sports should, if they want to be consistent, say, well, get rid of this. I mean, let's not have any more of these military flyovers. Let's not, let's not no more jets and soldiers and this militarism around around the game. This is meant to be sports. It's not meant to be some kind of recruitment campaign, you know, for the army. You know, that's, that, that would seem to me to be a consistent approach if, you're, if your whole thing was stick to sports. But I never see that. You know, I never see that. It's uh, it's always just, oh, stop trying to force your liberal, you know, opinions, your PC opinions down our throats. That's that's that seems to be what it really what it really means. Like this guy Kaepernick is a disgrace. You know, all this all the stuff Trump said. So I don't know. I mean, in in my opinion, uh, people people who have that view absolutely fine. You know, they're they're entitled to it. But it's just it's not my view. And in, you know, I feel as though there's there's a lot of other stuff to talk about. Besides, but we did feel in our, given that there's so much of this stuff now, it kind of made sense to have an entire other podcast just to try to, just to give more space to talk about things. Because I do know that people, sometimes people are listening and they're, it, you did begin to notice it a lot with, with the sort of Trump stuff, the sheer sort of repetitive, the mind-numbing repetitive nature of, like what, what at first was this was astounding and, and just staggering and, and beyond belief kind of became just normal and it's like yeah i mean how can you even be surprised by this stuff you know it's like uh, and then sort of boring it's like oh you know this dickhead is, is, is saying a lot of nonsense again you know like what what it's just like all the previous times you know what what can you do this is this is just what happens now you know what i mean so you do have to have to try to avoid boring the uh, <laughs> boring the audience like oh my god i'm really surprised at the latest thing like no one is surprised at anything he does anymore he can't surprise anyone anymore well, the, well I, uh, was actually, I was a bit surprised when he called 
um, Kim Jong-un short and fat, that, I was like, wow, okay, he, <laughs> he still can surprise me, but not very often. The, uh, I was going to say the, the one episode that I really enjoyed and learned a lot was, was your discussion about Barcelona and Catalan politics and things like that, because that was a lot of stuff that, frankly, I just, I mean, I sort of knew the general strokes of, you know, the history, but I mean, I didn't know anything as in-depth as what you guys talked about on that episode. Yeah, well, I mean, I know that I was just talking to this with Colin Talbine, who's uh, one of the top uh, novelists in Ireland, um, and who lived in Barcelona for a few years at different times, and had written a little, quite a lot about the city and about the situation there, going back over, going back a few years. So I thought he'd be an interesting person to get in. Yeah, he was. He was good. He. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. I mean, we got we got a good response to that one. Some people were complaining he was too pro Catalan. I didn't really think he was actually, um, but that's the that is the nature of those types of discussions. You know, people have strong feelings. Um, I mean, it's it's a bit like uh, it's a bit like football. I mean, I I I think what what we have started to see more recently is it's like the spread of football type thinking into politics. This is like the weird situation that we now have. Like you've always had this sort of this like tribalist kind of fanatical outlook where clubs supporters of different clubs, certainly this would be the case with English football, just sort of automatically hate everything to do with the rival club and sort of automatically support everything to do with their own club. Um, and you, and that that was that's always been the case, and there's always the, oh, there's always been a kind of a ha ha like this is this is sort of funny um, attitude to it because it doesn't really matter. I mean, you know, most of the time it doesn't really matter. You're talking about football, you're talking about a fictional reality, you're talking about like it doesn't really matter if you're if you unfairly refuse to to accept that Arsenal were the better team in the North London derby there because you're a Tottenham fan and you just hate Arsenal. You know, it doesn't really matter. It's it's kind of funny. It's kind of that's just the way football is. But what we now see is this mentality actually spreading into has has just completely taken over politics, and it now it's not really funny anymore because now this this stuff actually really does matter. So you see this phenomenon of, you know, you can see it very clearly in America because there's only two teams. You know, everyone has to sort of support one of the two teams, and people are capable of just going through any. Just going through, I mean, it's, you know, you know, there's the whole Suarez uh, thing with Liverpool and Manchester United, where the best player for Liverpool, Luis Suarez, had racially abused, was accused of racially abusing one of the Manchester United players, Patrice Evra, and it just became this huge um, controversy. Suarez was eventually found guilty of doing this and banned for what, was it ten, eight, ten, eight games, or I can't remember, eight or nine games, um, but it caused this huge bitterness and rancor. And people are saying, oh, you know, this. Um, it, what, what was interesting about it was the Liverpool side because they're they're basically supporting their player, and they're supporting him because he's their he's their he's their player. He's an absolutely brilliant player. He's the best. He's just the best player they have or can hope to get. And they just don't want to believe that he's that he's done this thing that he's accused of doing. So people would say either, oh, you know, it's it's in Uruguay, it's not racist to you know to to. Uh, call someone you know to refer to someone by their color um or you know oh he didn't say this and there's no evidence and blah 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 now, no one was saying 
yes, Luis Suarez is a racist and I'm supporting him anyway. Everyone was kind of like, no, Luis Suarez isn't a racist because dot, 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 the, the real reason is because I support Liverpool and don't want them to lose Luis Suarez. <laughs> you know what I mean? But they would find sort of reasons. Now, okay, that, that was happening in football. That was quite a serious case because it did obviously have a wider sort of social import with the sort of racial, <clears throat> the, the racial dimension that was going on there. But now I, I look at this case with Roy Moore in Alabama and I'm kind of thinking, this is this is some of the same stuff here. I can sort of see what's going on here. Like I, I can sort of see the Republicans, uh, you know, it's not like Republicans are saying, yeah, Roy Moore is a pedophile and yeah, I'm going to vote for him anyway because he's a Republican. What they're saying is, no, he's not a pedophile or, oh, this is all a Democrat's plot to make him look bad or, oh, this is the fake news media or, you know, we all know we can't we can't trust these allegations. They're not sort of defending the thing itself they're they're pretending that the thing doesn't exist or that it's you know what you, you see what i mean yeah but really it's just because we're supporting this guy because he's our guy and it doesn't matter what he's done it doesn't matter that you know it, that this should this clearly should should disqualify him but we know it, should, it clearly should it doesn't none of that matters we're going to find ways around all that because ultimately we're going to be supporting our team and i think this is quite a dangerous thing um, to see, it's not like this is the first time this has ever happened. You know, you know. I think I think you saw this sort of thinking was quite prevalent in Europe, sort of in the interwar period. You know, after the First World War, coming up to the Second World War, you had these new media technologies, which you also do now. But at that time, you know, you had radio was the big new technology, newsreels, these sorts of ways of propagandizing to the masses and you've ended up getting a lot of this fanatical thinking this nationalist thinking but you know i suppose you, you thought maybe this wouldn't this wouldn't come back because everybody has so much more information now you know what i mean and you know someone in someone who in, in these were believed in the race of the german people you know they were hearing this from sort of propaganda but there's not actually too much information you know, otherwise. And maybe you can see how people would fall into these ways of thought, you know. Whereas now, like, there is plenty of information. What we, what, it just turns out that there's, all, there's a lot of information, there's a lot of factual stuff out there. You can check these things, but nobody bothers, nobody cares. <laughs> it doesn't matter. you got people who think that the world is flat. You know? I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty crazy. Well, like, it's, um, I know... Uh... I don't know if he wrote a column about it, but I know on on their podcast, uh, on Roy Smith's podcast, they talked about how, you know, fake news, you know, has been in football forever, whether it's, you know, transfer rumors or, you know, just any kind of story that, like you said, you know, between tribalism and blind loyalty and not wanting to see reality that, that yeah, you can definitely see it in football and now you see it in real life, too. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and and in football, it was all uh, it was all just a bit of a game most of the time. Um, but yeah, this this sort of uh, these sort of patterns of, of thought in, in politics are, I think, pretty bad. I mean, I don't know where it's all where it's all leading to, but like it does seem as though something has gone wrong. You know, this this this. I don't. I mean, it's 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 impossible to get your head around. But you see some of that. So you see that Roy Moore stuff, and you're like, "Well, come on, seriously, <laughs> is, is this is this seriously where we're at now?" I can't really, I 
can't really imagine you. I mean, it used to be the case that people, I think in America, used to sort of switch parties from election to election. They go, oh, you know, I kind of like the Democrats this year. Oh, you know, the Republicans are so upset. You know, it was conceivable to do that, whereas now it's like you can't, like, go out with someone who supports the other party. Like, you know, it's just just bizarre. Well, certainly when I was growing up, even sort of at the height of, like, the Reagan administration in the 80s, it's like, you know, people did sort of go back and forth if you look at sort of the election totals that, you know, you would have a big landslide for one party and then maybe the next cycle will be closer or maybe switch and then it would go back. But, you know, it, yeah, now everything uh, is – everything just seems very, very polarized in al almost everything. And well, I suppose they are still they are still going back and forth a bit. Like you know, I did say that it doesn't really happen, but actually it did happen in the most recent election, where quite a lot of people who had voted for Obama then voted for Trump uh, in certain areas because I think Trump's campaign sounded a bit more like Obama's campaign, and maybe you know, in, in some of the things that he was saying in terms of you know. Uh, the, the trade policies have, have destroyed jobs in these areas and we need to bring back jobs. You know, rather than where Hillary started saying, Hillary probably sounded more like Romney, you know, to a lot of those people. Um, in other words, we, yeah, we're going to keep going the way we are and you guys can retrain and like become some other form. You know what I mean? Like, um, so I suppose there is, there was a bit of chopping changing, but it does seem to be a lot more, a lot more sort of partisan. Than well, I, th I think part of the other problem too was that a lot of the, fervent Sanders people uh, sort of upset at losing decided that they would not just blindly vote for their party's candidate and just decided not to vote. And mm -hmm. in certain places, you know, that made the addic the, the difference electorally. Yeah. So I think, you know, if, if, a, if a number of those people had sort of held their nose mm -hmm. from their point of view and voted for Hillary, then – the election may have been different, so. And would that? And would that? But would that actually? Would that? Would that have been better than what we have now? I mean, Donald Trump wouldn't have been president. That, that would have been good. I mean, given that, given that he is, you know, there's no telling what might happen. I mean, when you when you see this sort of farce, like that's just sort of blundering from farce to farce, you feel like it must be building up to something terrible. There must be something. Whatever does end up happening, this is all going to look really, really bad in hindsight. You know what I mean? Whatever, whatever way things end up going, people will look back and say, "Like, how did nobody, how did nobody stop this craziness when it was happening?" You know, we can see that. But, but imagine if Hillary had won the election. Imagine she had won the election, you know, by by a narrow margin, um, and you would have had Trump saying, "Oh, you know, this election has been rigged. You rigged the election." You would have had all the people who voted for him still as angry as they were. You would have had people denying the legitimacy of of Hillary Clinton. You know, all that sort of fury um that was that that's that's that, that see that fury that the existence of that that's a fact that's a thing that was out there one way or another this was going to have to be reckoned with it turns out that trump trump won the election but even if he'd lost the election that wouldn't have gone away it's it, it may have even been a worse outcome it may even have been a worse outcome in terms of the the the, the build-up of this sort of toxic uh right this sort of boiling over of anger at this, uh, this sort of system. I mean, Trump at least has won now. He's the guy who's in charge. I mean, if he fails to make anything happen, to, to some extent, at least, it has to be on him. You know, to some extent, at least, 
his side has to accept, well, this, you know, we, we have been in power and we haven't managed to achieve anything. I mean, I'm sure that they'll find a way to sort of deny responsibility for that as well. But, you know, it's, it's a bit like, um, it's not as though if Trump had lost, then it would have been like, whoa, that was close. The problem still would have been there. It's like this, you know, this Russia stuff that's, that's on all the time, like, oh, Russia, did Russia steal the White House for Trump? Now, I have no doubt that, that, that they did. The Russians did try to talk to Trump, and that Trump, obviously his son was talking to them, and, and I don't think it even would have occurred to them that there was anything wrong with doing that. Like, they're that ignorant, they wouldn't even have known, oh, hang on, this is actually kind of close, diverging close to treason. Yeah, it wouldn't even have occurred to them. They'd just be like, oh, what, you can help us? Sure. Who, who do you say you're with, the Russian... You're, you're close to the Russian uh, leadership. Oh, that sounds great. You sound like you probably have great sources. You know what I mean? But the point is that fo focusing on this whole Russian thing, sure, they, 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 were trying to, they were trying to promote Trump or certainly to promote confusion, you know, discord. This is sort of, yeah, why, why wouldn't they? They're just, they're just taking advantage of an opportunity. And maybe they made a little bit of a difference. Maybe there was a couple of hundred thousand people who voted one way rather than that. Maybe there was a million people. But how many millions of people voted for Trump? 63 million something like that you know that's that's your problem that's the problem you've got if you've got that many millions of people who look at donald trump and see a credible see someone who yeah we'd rather have this person as president than the other option we have <laughs> like that's the problem like russia russia did not create this problem russia did not make america the way the way that it is now america made america the way that it is now you know, the idea that Russia is somehow to blame for where America has ended up is just so delusional. It's 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 such such nonsense. Um, you know, it's 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 really it's unfortunate. I mean, which is not to say that I think they're they're innocent of collusion. I think they are. But like the idea that that this is all Russia's fault. Come on, seriously. Look, like you've got to at some point, America has to look at itself, and I mean the Democratic Party as well, has to look at itself and say, well. You know, how have we how have we let things get to this point? You know, what what are the mistakes that we've made? What do we need to do to fix this? And it's it's not about like Russia this and Russia that or you know, it's it's like mistakes, mistakes, you know, built up over years and years and years have created this this situation that you're in now. And it's nobody's fault but your own. On that happy note <laughs> <laughs> Ken, I want to thank you uh, very much for, for doing the show today. As we said, uh, you are part of the Second Captain's Podcast World Service. Um, if people want to become members, they can join at patreon.com. For folks over here, it's a little over $5 a month. And like we said, you get you know five or six uh, podcasts a week. Um, you also write for the Irish Times. I know you guys have come over here to do live shows in the past. Um, is that something that may happen again in 2018? You know, is, is there anything in the books? Oh, I hope so. Um, I don't think we were in book yet, but we were in, we, we did one in New York and one in San Francisco. So yeah, it'd be great to get over again. Uh, but at the moment, at the moment, not plans, but I think there's a good chance. There's a good chance we will do at some point in 2018. Yeah. That's cool, and people should know that you guys do have a decent bit of U.S. content. You have Brian Murphy on regularly. I don't know if it's weekly, but certainly all uh, fairly often to talk about U.S. sports. So if people, you know, that's it's sort of interesting to hear people from other places discussing 
like you said, you know, it, it's good to have sort of a different perspective, especially with the non-sports sports stuff going on. So, uh, Ken, thanks a lot for your time. Thanks again for doing the show. Sure is, Mark. Good to talk to you. Thanks again, and we will talk to everybody next time. I'm leaving on a jet plane. Don't know when I'll be back again. Oh, babe, I hate to go.